Hey, well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We gather in person and online. Now, online, we have the video version and we have the audio version. Uh, They're the same thing, just depends on where you get them. We have the video version on our Facebook page and on our website, faithonhill.com. Audio versions are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As are all of our other podcasts, you just have to search Faith on Hill. Our other podcasts include uh, the 20-minute Bible study, Uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. We have a timer. It goes for exactly 20 minutes, uh, and it is currently going through the book of 1 Samuel. We have the Talk About Anything podcast, which is a long-form conversational podcast, and we have the Starting Points podcast, which is going through the whole Bible, uh, Genesis through Revelation, and is an overview of all of the major sections and books of the Bible. Now, I know there's a lot of different reasons why people connect with us online. Uh, Some people can't make it out. Uh, Some people are sick. In fact, I know we've got some people who are are sick and we're praying for you. Uh, Some people have COVID this week. We're praying for you. Uh, I feel for you too. I was was sick a lot of this week. Didn't have COVID, thankfully, but I was actually sick in bed uh, quite a bit of this week. Um, uh, There's other reasons people are connecting. You know, people are just checking things out. They're considering the Christian faith. Uh, They don't feel comfortable being in church for whatever reason. Maybe somebody shared this uh, podcast or, or video with you. However you got here, we just want to say that you are welcome. Faith on Hill is a church that meets in the Oak Grove neighborhood in the Milwaukee area. Uh, We gather in person on Sunday mornings. We're really simple. We have prayer and worship through song. We study the Bible together. And then throughout the week, we meet in small groups. Uh, We have a young adult small group on Tuesday nights. We have an online small group on Zoom on Wednesday nights. We have a small group that meets Sunday mornings before church. Uh, And if you want more information on that, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. If you have any questions, if I said something that wasn't clear, if I said something that really bothered you, maybe I said something that you're like, I don't think that's right. That's totally fine. You can email me, Adam, at faithonhill.com if you have any questions. Uh, We are going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and you can check out Matthew chapter 21. Well, as we continue our study of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we are going to be, for the next few weeks, the next month or so, we are going to skip over certain parts of uh, the story, and it's not because they are not important, it's because we've already done them. Last spring, uh, Easter time, uh, we did those stories uh, during uh, Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and Good Friday and Easter, and so we've done them this year. We're going to refer back to them, but we are going to uh, move forward so that we can finish Matthew's gospel before we start our Christmas series. So in chapter 21, the first 11 verses, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he's been to Jerusalem before. And the other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us of Jesus's many trips to Jerusalem. Matthew emphasizes this specific final journey to Jerusalem to show Jesus coming as the Messiah, declaring himself to be Messiah. There were plenty of times where people tried to get Jesus to say, oh, hey, we, we, we're pretty sure. We're, we're pretty sure who you are. I think I know you, you know. And, uh, and he wouldn't do it because it wasn't his time. But now, now is his time. 
And so he does all of the things to identify himself as Messiah. He comes into Jerusalem, near as we can tell, on the very day that the prophet Daniel said the Messiah would come. He comes in in the way that the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would come, riding on a donkey. He comes in with the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He before has said, hey, don't tell anybody who I am. And now he's not stopping anybody. In fact, his critics say, this isn't right what they're doing. And he says, no, this is so right. This is so appropriate that if they weren't doing it, the very stones on the ground would shout out because what is happening here should and must happen. And then the very first thing that he does as he goes into Jerusalem, the Bible says in chapter 21, verse 12, that Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is, of course, the cleansing of the temple. This isn't actually the first time Jesus has done this. John's gospel says that at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus went to Jerusalem and did the very same thing. Um, and some people have said, well, isn't it just the same story and John just puts it at the beginning of his story and Matthew puts it at the end? N no, but Matthew and Mark and Luke all talk about this final cleansing. John puts his at the beginning but there's so many differences in the story. It seems clear that John is saying, no, there was a first time that Jesus did it. And it's generally agreed that, that John is saying, no, there was a separate incident where the same thing happened. That's interesting to me. Jesus came and cleansed, and yet they returned. And so he's coming to cleanse again. And it says he entered the temple courts. But the temple didn't have just one court. You know, uh, you might think of like a palace or a mansion or some large estate. And there's a courtyard. You know, you enter in through a gate. And then there's a large, a large courtyard before you enter into the main house or the main building. The temple had several courts. There was the first, the outer court. This is what Jesus is clearing. That was actually known as the court of the Gentiles. Anyone, anyone could enter. And anyone, anyone could or did. You, anyone could come in here. And then there was a gate. And on that gate, uh, history tells us, and they have, archaeologists have actually found uh, at least one of these signs in their excavation, but there was signs written in Greek and in Latin saying that all foreigners must stay here. You cannot pass through this gate or you will die. I'm paraphrasing. But, but those signs in Greek and Latin say, any foreigner who passes through this gate will die. In fact, you might remember if you have read the book of Acts. We studied the book of Acts on Sunday mornings about five years ago, so I don't expect anybody to remember that now. But uh, the apostle Paul was in the temple. 
And he had passed through those gates as any Jewish person could. And somebody said, I think he brought a foreigner with him. And so they went to kill him for having brought a foreigner through the forbidden gate, as the warning said not to do. So anyone could come in that outer court, the court of the Gentile. And then as you went into that gate, you went up a set of stairs and you entered what was called the court of the women. And any Jewish person, man or woman, could enter that court. And there, that was where, uh, if you read certain parts of the Gospels, uh, things are happening like uh, people are giving offerings. Uh, there's blessings happening. You read about the baby Jesus being blessed by the prophetess named Anna. Uh, that is where that all happens. Uh, anyone can be in there. And then there is an inner court called the court of men where any Jewish man could go. I'm not saying that's right. or that I understand why that division was made, but that was the division. And so only Jewish men could go there. And not just only Jewish men, but only Jewish men for whom there was no defect. Uh, If you had, uh, you know, some kind of defect, if you were uh, crippled in any way, you couldn't enter. There was to be no blemish entering. And it was supposed to be a representation of sinlessness, uh, of, of perfection entering. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I'm just saying this is how it was. And then from there, there was the inner court, the holy place, where only the priests could enter. And then within that holy place, there was the holy of holies, where only the high priest could enter, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which just happened uh, recently in our calendar. So, here they are in the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court where anyone could be. And Matthew's gospel says that Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, one of my favorite movies ever is Fiddler on the Roof. I love that movie so much, right? And of course, there's the character uh, who marries the middle daughter. You know, he's the young revolutionary. They don't, I don't know that they ever outright say he's a communist, but he's obviously a communist. And so he, uh, he doesn't quote this because he would never quote the New Testament, uh, but it's the same idea. He, he takes random verses in the Bible and uh, then uses it to say, and then obviously God is against capitalists, right? And so I could see somebody quoting this and saying that. He's certainly against this capitalism. Whatever's going on here, Jesus was against. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What is it that Jesus has against the selling of doves? There was a provision in the law that if somebody was too poor to afford to make the sacrificial offering of a lamb or a goat or a bull, they were able to offer doves, which anyone could afford. It's actually how we know that Jesus' family was in poverty, at least for a while. Because when 
Eight days after Jesus' birth, his family made the journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the temple to have him dedicated, to have him circumcised, and to make an offering before the Lord. And it says that they offered two birds, which was the offering of the poor. In fact, the gifts of the wise men, which didn't happen in Christmas, I don't want to get into this, but it happened possibly two years later, were gifts of provision so that they could flee Herod because they would not have been able to financially to have fled had it not been from that, for that provision from, from the Father. They were very, very poor. So the poor people would come and they could buy these, these doves to offer their sacrifice. But it says that they were changing money. What's going on there? Well, the official money was the Roman coin. But the priest said, you can't use the coin of an evil, oppressive, occupying empire to buy a holy thing like a sacrificial animal. You can only use the temple coin. Or if there was uh, somebody coming from other parts. There were Jewish communities outside of the Roman Empire. Jewish communities in what we would now think of as Iran or Iraq or um, north in, in the, kind of the Caspian Sea area. Jewish communities, uh, you know, south into what we would now think of as like uh, Ethiopia and, and eastern Africa. There were Jewish communities that were coming in from outside of the empire that didn't even have the Roman coin. So how do you change uh, your money into a usable form of currency? And so they would do the money exchange for you to be able to purchase the animal. Because if you're coming to do the sacrifice at the temple, but you live hundreds and hundreds of miles away, you can't bring necessarily bring the animal with you over that distance. So you would come and you would purchase the animal that would be approved by the, the priests, and then you could make the sacrifice and it would be okay but it was a scam because these money changers would charge exorbitant exchange rates and the priests would get a cut. And, and then there was this, you know, maybe uh, you'd bring your own animal, but you weren't guaranteed that the priest would say it's acceptable. You know, maybe a priest examines it and says, this isn't acceptable. So you have to go and buy one of the animals from one of the money changers. And the only, you know, and the only way you can do it is to buy one of the, the animals that the priests have for sale, but you can only do it by going through the money changers and there's a whole scam going on. The system is totally corrupt. So why did Jesus need to cleanse the temple? Because no one seems bothered by it, right? This is just the status quo. This is just how it is. The priests are okay with it. The, the religious leaders aren't bothered by it. Nobody is worried that this is happening. The, the political zealots, it's not part of their platform. The, um, they're, they're what are called, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact name. The, I'm not going to say it right. I'm just not. The, 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 the Qumram uh, communities, they were these um, sort of like standoffish, isolated communities. They lived out in the desert and they tried to live a life of like isolated purity and holy righteousness in their devotion to God. And they thought that even like people like the Pharisees were like too worldly in their following of, of the Jewish faith. 
And so the only time they would come into public would be like they knew they, okay, we have to go to the temple to do the sacrifices. But other than that, we stay away. And when they came to the temple, they didn't go, this isn't right. You know, they didn't cleanse the temple. What's happening? Why is it that Jesus is doing this when no one else seems to be bothered? Can I suggest to you that the reason that no one else seems to be bothered is directly related to my next question. What space is he clearing out? It's not the court of the men. It's not the court of the women. It's the court of the Gentiles. It's the outer court. That is the space that he is clearing out. And that, I'm going to suggest, is why no one else is bothered. No one else is bothered because no one else is inconvenienced. They took a space that was meant to welcome in outsiders. They took a space that was meant to welcome in people on the fringes. They took a space that was meant for anyone and everyone to come and meet with God. And they filled it for their own convenience. They were not being inconvenienced. They were actually being convenienced. Life was being made easier for them. As much as there was a scam, as much as there was corruption, as much as what was going on was immoral and and evil in the sight of God, it was also incredibly convenient for the people. Think about that. I, I heard a story on OPB last week about Minden, Nevada. I'd never heard of Minden, Nevada. I know where it is, generally speaking, in the Carson Valley. Uh, it's kind of, if you've ever been to Tahoe, and then you drop down in, from the mountains into the Carson Valley near Carson City in Reno, flat, open area, and there's a siren There's a siren that sounds every day. And for decades, this siren has sounded at noon and at 6 p.m. And officially, the reason the siren sounds at noon is to tell all of the ranchers and the ranch hands and everybody working out in these vast open spaces for miles and miles around the area. It's lunchtime. Why does the 6 p.m. siren sound? Well, there's no official documented reason why the 6 p.m. siren sounds. Unofficially, though, the siren sounded at 6 p.m., or it started to, because there used to be what was called a sundowner law. And the sundowner law said all non-white people needed to get out of Minden by 6.30. So once that siren sounded, unless you had a special work permit, so basically a non-white person, if they had a special work permit to work in the casino or, or to do some sort of domestic work or something like that, unless you had that, you had to get out of town, back to the reservation or wherever, within 30 minutes of that siren sounding. Or you'd get thrown in jail for the night. And those laws have since gone away. But every day at 6 p.m., that siren sounds. And there are still people living who were either they themselves thrown in jail for not getting out of town quick enough, or their parents were, or their grandparents were. And every night, the Washoe people on the Washoe Indian Reservation, just 30 minutes out of town, can hear that siren. And every night, they have a a tangible, visceral reminder 
that they are not welcome on the very land that their people have lived on for thousands of years. Why am I saying all this? Well, then the reporter who's doing the story just went and asked people in the town, like, are you bothered by the siren? And people are saying, no, I like the siren. It's always been there, and it lets me know what time it is. It's a tradition. I don't see what the big deal is. Why is it that they don't see what the big deal is? Because it's never inconvenienced to them. In fact, it's actually been a convenience for them. They know when it's lunchtime. They know when it's dinner time. You can tell your kids, hey, make sure you're back by the time the siren sounds. You know, it's summertime. Kids are out playing. If you know, hey, I got to be back. The siren sounds. I better be back quick, right? These, these things could be incredibly helpful. It's never been a bad thing for you. It's never been an inconvenience. I think one of the reasons why no one was bothered about this because it was in the court of the Gentiles. Who could come into the court of the Gentiles but couldn't go through the forbidden gate? We know from the Gospels that there were people, there were centurions who were God-fearing people, but for various reasons they could not fully convert to Judaism. So they could come to the court of the Gentiles and worship God there in the temple, but they could not go further. There were Jews who, because of infirmities or deformities, could not go any further than the court of the Gentiles. There were people who maybe they had not fully given themselves to God, but maybe they were seeking, and and they could come to that point. But now there was no space for them. That space had been taken for the convenience of others. Why was it that no one was bothered? It could be apathy at the corruption. Well, that's just how it is. And it could also be because as much as this space was now being used not for its intended purpose, but it was conveniencing a group, right? This group that now They've got the court of the women. They've got the court of the men. They've got full access to that. And now they're taking the space of this area that's meant for the fringe and the marginalized and the outsider. Instead of welcoming them in, they are now pushed out even further to the outside. And you might think, Adam, what are you talking about? And I get that, by the way. Because every sermon I have ever heard preached on this subject focuses on on Jesus cleansing the temple and the need to cleanse ourselves and and live in holiness and, and the need to cleanse the church or the need to cleanse our lives. And I believe in all of that. Don't get me wrong. But what is it it says in verse 14? It says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple. They were on the outside and they got to come in now. There was space for them. They were suddenly welcomed in. Look who Jesus brought into this space. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Last week, as he left Jerusalem, we talked about how they called out, these two blind men called out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd said, go away. He doesn't have time for you. This this week, it's not that he doesn't have time. They're saying, hey, we don't have space for you. And Jesus makes space for them, and he invites them in. 
One of the things that we uh, talked about in our small group last Wednesday about the, the two blind men crying out was how in our culture today, there are people, I believe, who are calling out for help, calling out for mercy, but because they have been hurt or wounded by the world around, maybe a, a broken home, a, a horrible upbringing, past trauma, current trauma, they don't know how to say, help me. They just know how to act out. They just know how to treat people badly. They don't know how to say, I need help. They just know how to hurt other people. But really what they're saying is, have mercy on me. They just don't know it. They just, they just don't know it yet. But Jesus, in cleansing the temple, makes space for them. Makes space for them to come in. And he heals them. And when he does, it says in verse 15, the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did. So Matthew's saying, hey, these are fantastic things. And the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he quotes uh, from Psalm 8, uh, you know, speaking about how God has, has put the praises of God into the hearts of children. And, and so he's saying, hey, this is a beautiful thing. And what are you guys mad about? And it says he left them and went out into the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And, and you'll find that when you read through the last week of Jesus' public life and ministry, every night he has to leave Jerusalem. And the one night he doesn't is the night he is betrayed and, and arrested. And it says early. Now, before I get to that, it's interesting to me that while the children are welcoming the, the Messiah, so he's, he's welcoming in the people on the fringe, the, the outsider, the people who, who just want to come in and, and find God. And he's welcoming them in and he's bringing them in and he's made space for them where there should have been space and there wasn't. He's made space for them. And then the children are, are running around shouting the praises of God. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he. And they're running around shouting. What a wonderful thing. While the children welcomed the Messiah, and remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how in their society, the children had some of the lowest position, the least regarded, the least looked upon. And while the, the foolish children, and I say that in air quotes because I have high regard for children, but while the foolish children, so-called, ran around declaring the praises of the Messiah, the supposedly wise rejected the Messiah's good work. And the next morning, it says, early in the morning, Jesus was on his way back to the city. It says he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except for leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, not only can you do what is done to the fig tree, but you can say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. 
If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Okay. The fig tree is a slightly divisive story in the Bible. Each gospel account that mentions it tells it in a slightly different way. I tend to think what happens is we take modern standards of telling a true story and apply them to ancient standards of telling a true story. And that's where we get a lot of our confusion. I tend to think that Mark and Luke's account is probably the one that is factually more accurate. And I don't mean that Matthew's is less accurate. I mean that Matthew is, is telling... If you look at Mark and Luke's, Mark and Luke say that this, this story kind of happened in morning and evening. He curses the tree in the morning. They come back in the evening. They find it withered. What Matthew is just trying to do narratively is is give you the whole picture, but he's got a, five other things he's got to get done. I'm not bothered by that. I actually think people miss the whole point of this story to begin with. Because what happens is people either focus on the, the differences in the tellings of the fig tree between Matthew and Mark and Luke, or they say, man, Jesus seems real hangry here. He's hungry the fig tree looks like it's going to bear fruit, but there's no fruit, so he curses it. The, he's just kind of petty here. Or they focus on this whole thing about moving mountains. Like, oh, if I just believe enough and pray hard enough, I can say, Mount Hood, I don't like you there. Move over. But that's not the point. I actually think Jesus is dismissive is the wrong word, but I think he's actually kind of saying this isn't the point. Like, they're amazed about the fig tree withering up after they have seen all of the other miracles. They've seen the 5,000 fed, the 4,000 fed, walking on water, the dead raised, the sick healed. They've seen all the other miracles and they're amazed at this. I think what Jesus is saying, like, yeah, if, if you, the power of God has no limits, if we are living in the power of God, then, then what can stop us from doing what God wants done? But I don't think that that is the main point. And I said earlier, every sermon I've ever heard about the cleansing of the temple has been about some bigger idea of, of, you know, get your life in order, fix your life, fix the church, do this, do that. Remember I said at the very beginning that Jesus, according to John's gospel, at the very beginning of his ministry, cleansed the temple, drove the money changers out. But we find three years later, They were back. Jesus' public ministry was about three years in length. The beginning, he cleanses them. Three years later, they're back. And I guarantee within days of his death and resurrection, they were back again. You You could clear it all out. And what changes? You could... You could pray all this stuff and I'm going to pray and have faith and I'm going to face my giants and I'm going to move mountains and I'm going to do all of these inspirational things. And what changes? I don't think this is the point. The point was about accepting or rejecting Jesus. The point was about the Messiah and who Jesus is. And 
Although Jesus entered Jerusalem and, and the people along the way shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the people of Israel, the priests, their leaders, their scribes, their Pharisees, and, and let me say the majority of their people, stood and, and said, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. When he cleared the temple, they said, what are you doing? And as a people collectively, I'm not talking about individuals, but as a people collectively, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And now Jesus is rejecting them. There is a mystery, but near as... The best way I can explain it is this. God called a chosen people out of this world. He took a, a, a nobody, a guy out of obscurity named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, from your descendants, I'm going to make a people for myself. And even though Abraham was totally obscure and had no descendants, had no children, God gave him a son Isaac, and from Isaac he had Jake, uh, he had, uh, sorry, from Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and from the 12 sons he had the 12 tribes of Israel. From the 12 tribes of Israel you have the Jewish people. And God made a covenant with them, I will be your God, you will be my people. And from you will come forth the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was prophesied all the way back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the one who will defeat the enemy, the one who will conquer sin and death. And when he came, when he arrived, he was rejected. And, and I believe a pause was placed at this point on the people of Israel. It's almost like a stopwatch. And if you've ever had a stopwatch, you know, you're timing, you're timing, and then there's like a pause button. And it's, it's in pause mode. And then the Apostle Paul describes the church like a mystery. That the, the prophets saw Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. And you can see this where Isaiah talks about this coming warrior, conqueror, and this coming suffering servant. And they seem to be the same person, but they seem to be doing two different things. And, and Isaiah sometimes painted the most stark difference, but Ezekiel saw the same thing. Daniel saw the same thing. Jeremiah saw the same thing. All through the prophets, you see this duality, these two comings, and yet they seem to be the same person. If we were to look east towards the Cascades, you know, sometimes you see two mountains that look like they're side by side. But then if you were to turn and, and, and you might turn from a different angle and you would see that there's actually quite a bit of distance between them and perhaps a large valley in between. And hidden in between these two mountains is the large valley with, with a river and maybe a town or, or a forest or something that you couldn't see. 
And as I understand it, that is the church. That is this age of grace we are in. That is this moment where God is calling people to him from all tribes and tongues and races and, and, and every background from all corners of the world saying, come and enter into the kingdom of heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And there will come a point, and in a few weeks we'll get to that, by the way, uh, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 gives us his teaching on the end of the world. But there will come a point, I believe, where that age of grace, the time of the church will end and the stopwatch will start again and God will deal again with his people, Israel. And, and they will not be rejected forever. And, and the, the prophets talk about them accepting Jesus as Messiah. And the, the prophets talk about, uh, they will, there's one of the most beautiful prophecies, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as for an only son. And they will say, where did you receive these wounds? And he will say, I received them in the house of my friends. And they will realize what has happened. And they will grieve for what has happened, but they will rejoice that the grace that's extended to them. It's beautiful. So what's happening here is important for us to understand. Functionally, this is the beginning of the official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the people of Israel. It's culminated by his crucifixion. Now, individually, Jewish people to this day still choose Jesus all the time. Uh, Pastor Andy, who, who preached here uh, last March, uh, who performed my wedding, raised, you know, he's, a, he's Jewish. By, by ethnicity, uh, you know, and uh, converted to Christianity in high school. Jewish people become Christians all the time. Uh, the original Christians uh, were all Jewish. All of the New Testament writers, except for Luke, were Jewish. I mean, we think of like Paul and Peter because we use their Greek names, but they were all Jews. We, just because we use their Greek names and we forget they're very, very much Jewish. Uh, Paul wasn't raised particularly in Israel, but the rest of them were raised in Israel itself. So individually, yes, Jewish people come to Jesus all the time. But collectively, as a people, God said, all right, I was working through you, and you guys rejected me. So now I'm working through the church, and there will come a time where I will call you back to me again. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks when we get to Matthew chapter 24. But I think it's important to understand as believers what's going on here. This is kind of an official point in the process as we move towards the cross. But I think it's also important to understand as individuals that this is a choice that every person makes. Individually, individually, there comes a time where we accept or we reject who Jesus is as Messiah, who Jesus is as Lord, who Jesus is as Savior. Jesus has been working in your life. Jesus has been moving in your life. Jesus has been doing a work in your life. Maybe Jesus cleansed something out once in your life, like when you were in high school, and then maybe like, you know, 10 years later, Jesus did a work again, and you're like, okay, maybe this is it. But all of us have to make a choice 
All of us have to make a decision for or against Jesus. Right here is where the people collectively begin to make the choice against Jesus. All of us have to make the choice individually. Do we accept or do we reject him? And the invitation to accept him is still there. It is still open until you have drawn your last breath. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is ready. Jesus is willing. Cry out to him. Call out to him wherever you are, wherever you are at. I believe he will meet you. Oh, my.